Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennium Money Professional. And in this episode, it's a Money Wins episode, and we have Dr. Nick who is a practicing clinician. Um, welcome, Dr. Nick. Hi, Dev. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today. We're going to get some tips from Dr. Nick, learn about him as a doctor, talk a little bit about savings. We're going to go into medical school advice, some of the medical students out there, and also talk about debt investing. Let's get started. Now, if you're new to the podcast, just remember the three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. And if you have any specific questions, don't hesitate to reach out via Twitter or via my Facebook page. So welcome, Dr. Nick. Now, just to clarify, Dr. Nick is not your real name. And I asked you before the episode to pick a name and you came up with Dr. Nick. Is that like a Simpsons thing? Because isn't there like a famous doctor in <laughs> Simpsons called Nick Riviera who does all the dodgy stuff? Or <laughs> Look, it, it might have been. I am a Simpsons fan, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was a huge Simpsons fan, uh, certainly back in the 90s, maybe early 2000s. Do, do you still watch The Simpsons like actively or you've sort of lost touch? Uh, I, I watch it when I can. I've got two small kids, so I don't have much time to watch uh, watch much at all, actually. But um, yeah, I was a big fan. So two small kids. So you probably watch a lot more Bluey. Or what, what, what's the show these days? I know Bluey was pretty big a couple of years ago. Uh, we're watching a lot of Blippy and a lot of Coco Melon. Um, so yeah, that's on repeat on uh, YouTube Premium at the moment. Right, right. So Dr. Nick, tell us about yourself. Um, my understanding is you are Victorian based, but tell us about your upbringing, where you were born and uh, a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I grew up in, um, in uh, regional Australia. Uh, I'm a first generation migrant, um, travelled a lot for study and then work before, yeah, settling down, as you said, in Melbourne, uh, married with, um, with, sm- with small children, yeah. Right. Okay. So regional Australia as in Victoria or are we talking another state or? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another state. Yeah. Thousands of okay, kilometres right. Victoria. <laughs> Thousands of kilometres. Right. So, and, and, and what made you move to Victoria? Was it basically medical school or career or? Uh, no, I, I um, moved uh, following my wife, who's an academic, who, um, who works, uh, works as an academic in one of the Melbourne universities. So yeah, I'm, I'm following my wife. Happy wife, happy life. I agree. And are you predominantly then Melbourne-based, yeah? Correct, correct, yes. Okay. And um, look, I'm, uh, uh, I actually grew up uh, in Adelaide and I've been in Melbourne for a number of years. And I have to say, there's something about Melbourne that is very addictive and attractive. Um, as much as I hate the traffic and as much as I hate the weather, which is uh, complete rubbish, but uh, it, it is a very vibrant city despite all the, you know, tortures that we've had to endure in the last sort of two and a half years. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big Melbourne fan. I'm just curious, uh, are you a Melbourne fan convert or you, you still sort of have your regional roots? Or? 
Look, um, look, I'm recording this podcast on holiday at the moment back home. So every time I come home, I get the uh, the pangs of homesickness. But uh, yeah, I think as, as you said, there's, there's so much going for Melbourne. It's such a big place, so much opportunity, uh, not just for myself, but for my wife, obviously. So um, it's probably a, probably a long-term option for us, yeah. Yeah, at this stage, I've, I've pissed off a lot of New South Wales and Sydney people, I'm sure. Um, so tell us about your approach to money in general, you know, specifically your savings rate. You're a millennial like me. So do you sort of every month have a specific savings rate that you aim for? Uh, do you use pay yourself approach? What, what's your philosophy on that? Yeah. So um, again, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the podcast, and uh, I've been listening from very early on. So it, it's a it's a it's a great honour to be on, and uh, I'm really appreciate what you guys are doing to educate, empower, and entertain, as you've said. So having said that, though, um, we don't have a specific saving rate, and we're quite lucky in our household that. Um, our income quite comfortably outpaces our expenses at this stage, so we don't we don't establish a specific savings rate. Uh, it's more that um, I'd like to think that we, we live pretty frugally, uh, and all of our savings at the moment. Um, previously, they were going into to investments, Vanguard investments, any surpluses. Um, but you know, since we've purchased a house and have a mortgage, uh, everything's going towards offsetting that mortgage at the moment. Yeah. Right. Uh, so when you say you don't have a specific savings rate, I mean, uh, do you have like a minimum savings rate? I mean, would it be less than 20% or you're, you're comfortably above the 20% range? Uh, yeah, I think I think we're, we're probably 50% plus is our savings rate. But yeah, we don't calculate it as such, but yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, so, so it's, it's interesting because I think when, uh, you know, presumably you're a high income earner and, and when you earn more income, your expenses in general, I mean, apart from kids, doesn't really skyrocket. You know, that's kind of what happened during my training. And I listened to Jim Daly, I think his name is, who's White Court Investor, who's a famous podcaster in the US, who often says, live like a resident uh, when you become a fellow or a consultant. So I've sort of used that philosophy where, you know, when I was a registrar, I'd be able to manage on X amount of income, then I became a fellow, then my income basically increased or doubled. Then I didn't see any reason to increase my expenses. Um, Is that the sort of same philosophy that you've sort of naturally used in your life where your income's gone up, but your expenses have been relatively low and therefore by definition, your savings rate then becomes higher and higher. Yeah, that resonates with me as well. Um, the amount I spend on myself really hasn't changed much. Uh, the only differences as a family would obviously be our sort of our mortgage expense and um, maybe in years to come children's education expense. But yeah, really, really not much has changed expenditure wise. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned a dual income family. So to me, that that is a huge advantage um, to people that have dual incomes. How do you then go about, you know, do, do you sort of say, okay, I'm, I'm going to save one person's income and then live on the other person's income? Or do you sort of share expenses? I mean, h- how do you sort of do that for dual income families? Yeah. I mean, um, we, we really haven't sort of, um, I guess, yeah, maybe even spoken about that really. It just it's happened by default. Um, we each earn income, um, and we don't really ca- keep track of who's spending on what. Uh, my wife wife works part time at the moment, and she's on maternity leave at the moment. So, you know, my income sort of outpaces hers by a fair bit. So, um, any big ticket expenditures like mortgage, car purchases, any home renovations, daycare, that sort of stuff comes out of my income. Um, and, uh, you know, whatever she earns just goes into our offset and um, sort of work it out that way. Yeah. 
Okay. And you did mention about Vanguard, um, which, you know, I'm, I mean, it's no secret that I'm a big Vanguard fan. I don't get paid or sponsored uh, by Vanguard. I think their system is relatively simple. And as a practicing clinician, the last thing I want is any complexity associated with my investments. But you also mentioned about the current savings predominantly going towards um, your offset or paying off your mortgage. Um, Is that because of the rising interest rate environment? Have you sort of switched from investing to paying off your mortgage or do you still do a bit of investments, but a significant proportion goes to your offset? Yeah, I was pretty lucky that um, before we got a mortgage, I'd already put a reasonable amount into that index fund with Vanguard. Um, So I'm kind of just letting that compound away for the moment. And uh, as as sort of interest rates rise, I feel that the risk-free rate of return is going up as well. So I'll prioritise putting, putting as much as I can into that offset. Um, also, because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking with a growing young family, we might need to you know upgrade our primary place of residence at some stage. And those offset funds will come in handy if we need to do that in, in the years to come. So it's, it's interesting how you've sort of changed your investing philosophy as the interest rates have gone up. And, you know, I, I, I agree. I mean, I get contacted by a lot of healthcare workers who basically, you know, ask me, oh, what's the best investment? And I'm like, well, that's the wrong question. I mean, the question really should be what's best for you. And it's completely acceptable to put predominantly your income into an offset account because you know you're getting a guaranteed return, which is in your case, tax-free. And I think one of the biggest challenges that I've had with doctors especially is that they try and maximise every little thing and then eventually they get it wrong because they never do anything. Um, So I've just found that keeping it simple has been extremely useful. Now, I've got a fair bit of medical students listening in uh, and also aspiring medical students. What's your advice to them in terms of career? Now, we can't divulge your specialty, but um, we, we've spoken pre-episode and I think you're comfortably in the mid to high uh, six figures um, in terms of annual family income. What's your career advice for a budding medical student that's thinking about specialties or even as an internal resident? Any particular things that you would like to tell them? Uh, look, there's there's a few points that I'd I'd make is that you know Australia is a very very big country uh, and there are huge opportunities for doctors both you know inside and outside of medicine, um, in the metros in the regions working remotely fly in fly out and more recently with uh, sort of virtual health and telehealth options. So I think it's a very exciting profession and industry to be in, um, and I think it's important to remind oneself of that during the. Uh, maybe inevitable challenges and struggles uh, and, you know, ups and downs that come with a life in medicine. Um, I think it's really useful to find um, guidance and mentorship in some way, Um, perhaps a professional colleague who's even a few years ahead of you, uh, whose career you perhaps want to, you know, emulate or or use as a bit of an example, who can provide you uh, with a bit of a confidential sounding board and some impartial guidance. I think those um, sort of person-to-person links uh, are really invaluable and probably something we don't get taught the importance of very much in medical school as such and something that other professions, probably the ones that rely on word of mouth uh, to sustain themselves and referrals like you know business, law, finance, etc., are probably much better at than us. 
So I think it's it's really important to develop your skills to become a good doctor, no matter which specialty you choose, but also to develop your own personal network of people you can call on, people you can confide in and people you can trust, uh, people who you know have your interests, interests front of mind when they're advising or counselling you, and also people that you can relax and be comfortable and be with be yourself around. The final piece of advice is probably that uh, you know most of us come to medicine from a very heavily academic background and we're quite book smart. Uh, and maybe, you know, like most industries, it's important to have that theoretical knowledge and those qualifications, but your ability to do your job uh, only really comes in from putting in the hours, seeing and treating patients or doing procedures, depending on what your specialty is. So um, as well as getting this study done, um, it's also important to make plenty of time to actually apply your skills and hone your craft uh, no matter what you do. Yeah, I think they're very, very valid points. So one of the things that I've found um, as I've matured in my career is that you come across a lot of people uh, who are very smart, you know, intelligent, smart, know exactly, you know, the trajectory of the ulnar nerve from an anatomical perspective and they can do cross-sectional anatomy identifications. But I think to go to the next level, to be able to be able to be successful uh, in a career, particularly in medicine, is how you communicate, how you present yourself, your affability, your availability and your ability. And we've talked about this and I've talked about this in previous episodes, the three A's of medicine is so critical. I come across a lot of doctors who don't get that right despite being phenomenal clinicians um, and really struggle. Is that something that you've come across in your career where you've sort of, you've sort of looked at someone and gone, man, you know, this doctor is amazing skill set, but it's got zero communication skills or, you know, zero affability and therefore they're just not progressing in their career? Is that something that you've come across? Because I certainly have. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, medicine as a career, getting into med school, getting into specialty training, completing that program, they're, they're intensely competitive. And that really drives that sort of individualistic streak in people, that sort of winner takes all, all sort of mentality. But once you get to the end of your fellowship and you actually, you know, get out into being an independent practitioner, whatever you might be, you realise actually what this is all about is it's a team sport. It's about, you know, uh, bringing people with you, teamwork, leadership, and that doesn't happen by being a ruthless, egotistical, sort of not very nice person. So, um, yeah, it's really about being a collaborator, consensus former, and, uh, you know, really bringing people along in whatever you're doing. You know what's interesting, um, Nick, is that it's the same clinicians that go round and round. I'll give you an example is as I've matured, um, you know, I've just recently sat in on a credentialing executive meeting and, you know, a doctor that I'd worked with uh, eight years ago was part of that meeting. And we met in this meeting and we're like, wow, you know, you're still around. What are you doing? Um, Dev, what are you doing, etc." So it's the same people that you sort of come across. And in terms of progressing in career, I mean, really is um, sage advice that I got when I was a junior, uh, you know, resident or intern or even junior registrar is to be able to get into a program of training, to be able to complete that training, to be able to pass the fellowship exams, um, you can't just be a bookworm. You need to be able to apply their skills in practice and you need to be able to apply their skills in life. It's that's what's going to get you through to the end. And when you finish fellowship, the battle, the journeys, the competition 
the opportunities begins. Um, and we have a lot of registrars, a lot of residents, and even allied health professionals, junior physiotherapists, junior pharmacists, nurses who are wanting to do postgrad critical uh, care or whatever they want to do in terms of their postgrad listening in. My sort of advice would be, yes, being a good clinician is fundamental. That's really important. But you need to have other skills in addition to that to make sure that your good clinical skills, you know, are showcased and people can see it and appreciate it and you display it for everyone to um, appreciate it. And, and once you do that, you just basically rinse and repeat and then opportunities sort of tend to come your way. So that's, you know, if you're a med student listening in, that would be my take-home points. Um, Sonny, anything else to add from your take-home points? No, I'd agree with all of that, um, Dev. You know, uh, no man, no woman is an island. We don't live or work in isolation. Uh, you know, it's, it's all about that team and um, finding win-win situations for, you know, any negotiation or even in any conflict that, that you get into, you know, um, try, try to, trying to make as, as many winners, not just yourself uh, along, along the journey. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, just bringing the team along. At this stage, we'll take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about debt We'll go a little bit more detail about your investing and uh, any other sort of interesting things that you'd like to share. I'll be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, welcome back. Now, debt. Uh, Nick, what's your view on debt? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of debt on the whole, and the only debt that I have is, is my mortgage, as we couldn't afford to buy our home outright. Um, having said that, and as I mentioned before, as my young family grows and we need more space and we may need to upgrade our home, I imagine at some point, you know, we'll take on more debt uh, to perhaps buy another residence and convert the current home into a negatively geared sort of investment property or another asset. So I think overall, as long as your debt is in um, quality, you know, non-speculative assets and is comfortably service serviceable, uh, then I think there are probably no huge issues with it. So, yeah. Look, it's tricky in Australia. If you've got enough money to buy a house outright, then uh, you, you probably don't need much, you know, help with your finances. But I, but I'm curious. Do do you have any other like consumer debt, for example? Like, you know, what's your view on car loans? Because that's a question that I get a lot from doctors who 
most often just fellowed. And they say, oh, Dev, you know, um, I want to buy a car and I got a great interest rate from this car loan company. You know, w- what do you think? And I'm like, hell no. Um, but but I'm just curious what you think about that. Yeah, look, certainly wouldn't take on any debt to ever buy a car. Uh, a car for me is something I get used to get from A to B and as long as it's safe and reliable, I, I don't really mind what I'm driving. Um, I suppose I, I do have a credit card purely for convenience um, and maybe for the points, which is debatable whether that's of benefit or not, but all the insurances that perhaps come with it as well. Um, so yeah, pay it off in full every month, but no other debt, no other debt. And can I ask then, does that mean, I mean, you know, we've discussed family income of mid to high six figures. Do you drive a Mercedes or a BMW or an Audi? <laughs> no, no I, I drive a Haval uh, and I, and I get, uh, get lots of stick from my mates for driving it. But, um, you know, with the supply chain issues, it was very hard to get my hands on a, um, a, a Mazda or a Toyota um, when, when, when the second child came along. So, so this was a car that I could get straight away and it's done the job so far and hopefully it will do for, for many more years. Yeah. So, you know, although we're not talking about, you know, specifically about cars, but that's an interesting, I would call that a money win, But because essentially the percentage of your income that you've spent on your car, um, I don't know much about um, Havals, but I think they're made in China and they're relatively cheap. I actually looked at a couple of them on the road. They look phenomenally, they look well, they, they look really good, but they're probably 50% the price of your luxury car. So again, for, for people listening in, you know, just because you have a very high income doesn't mean that you need to go and buy a flashy car, particularly at the peak earning years. Now, that's not to say that you can never enjoy life. If you want to buy a flashy car, try and avoid a car loan, essentially. So obviously you have a credit card, don't have any personal loans. I mean, what, what you're saying, your view on debt is as long as you have debt and you use that money to buy something that potentially increases in value, then you're okay with that. But even then, you know, I, I, I would think, um, I, mean, I mean, I don't know, you know, where you live and what sort of house that you have, but presumably you have some rules about how much money you borrow to buy a house to live in, right? I mean, given such a high income, the banks will loan you significant amount of debt, do you have any such rules? My rule is 30% of after-tax income max uh, on a monthly basis. That's going to be my commitment to any any of the houses. Do you have any such rules on that? Yeah, I, I'd probably follow along the same way. You know, 20 to 30% is probably the comfort zone uh, and anything more than that, you'd need to have a very, very good reason to be doing that. So I'm going to rebut you on that a little bit just because one of the questions that I always get is, but Dev, Today's housing prices are ridiculously high. Yes, they've gone down by 10% in Melbourne and maybe 15% in Sydney, but it's still pretty damn expensive. What about the physio or the pharmacist or the intern that are not on significantly high incomes? What's your response to that? Do they just have to just wait it out and, and save up money or somehow increase their income? Because that's a common rebuttal. They say, well, then I can never get a house. Mm. Look, I think how I'd rebut that is to say that, as I said before, you know, Australia is a very, very, very big country uh, and there are many more housing markets than just the Sydney and the Melbourne markets. Uh, you can get a lovely house in, you know, regional parts of Australia, even, you know, other cities like Adelaide or Perth, uh, get, a, get a house that's comfortably cheaper by many magnitudes than your average house in Sydney or Melbourne and still live a very good quality of life. 
Yes, that might be, you know, away from your established friend and family sort of networks, but I think that's part of the adventure of life, you know, uh, trying something new and um, you never know what opportunities you'll find, not just in housing, but perhaps career-wise in, you know, regional, rural, remote Australia. And I'm not even talking, you know, thousands of kilometres away from uh, in the middle of Whoop Whoop, you know, I'm talking an hour or two out of the major metros. So, yeah, personally, as, as a doctor, when I've worked and trained in those regions, I've really been tempted to set up my life in those areas, but we've only been drawn back to the major metro, uh, as I mentioned before, for my wife's work, which is very metrocentric. Yeah, yeah interesting, because when, when people ask me that question, essentially what they're saying is, the way that I interpret it is, you know, sometimes I want to have my cake and eat it too. It's it's really difficult out there to buy a house, uh, no doubt. I mean, I, I got lucky, bought my first home in 2009 um, for like high 300s um, in Melbourne's eastern suburbs, which which you wouldn't even dream of being able to afford now because, you know, it's quadrupled or quintupled since then, if not more. Um, so I hear the pain of young people um, or younger people that are facing rising costs of living, you know, relatively lower incomes, inflation, lots of challenges ahead. But my sort of advice to them, I suppose, is don't get sucked in because, you know, things change. You know, you maybe you can buy a house somewhere where you can afford and maybe rent where you want to live. Yes, it's possible. Uh, and also don't underestimate your ability to increase your income because that's kind of what I had to do in order to be able to buy a home. Because in 2009, I thought I paid too much um, and at the time, I bought at the peak of the market. Here we are, some 10 odd years later, uh, never in my wildest dreams have I imagined that prices would continue to rise. Did you end up buying a home in Melbourne as your first home or did you end up buying regionally or in a smaller city or anything like that? Mm, mm. Yeah, so I was previously in uh, in Adelaide before I was in Melbourne and I, I bought a property there that I used when I was you know working and studying there. Uh, so I've kept that as an investment property, fully paid off, um, passive income. And yeah, we've sort of bought, bought, we rented for a number of years while we were moving around before settling down and have bought another primary place of residence in Melbourne now. Right. Okay, cool. Um, investing. Now you've already told us that you invest via Vanguard. Do you do that sort of core and satellite approach where like, you know, your core portfolio is index or ETFs, broad-based, et cetera. Then you got your super. Then you got the sort of satellite portfolio where you just individually stock pick. Um, do you do any of that sort of stuff? Or? Uh, no, the, the Vanguard is just the, the di- one of the diversified Vanguard funds. Um, so it's got a little bit of a bond allocation and then the rest of it is in equities. Um, bonds haven't done too well in the last 12 months, but you know, over a long time horizon, I, I feel that's probably okay. Um, in terms of other sort of individual share investments, you know, unless there are huge, huge market dislocations, for example, what happened around the peak of COVID, and I maybe bought a, a very, very, very small parcel of you know oil and travel stocks, uh, betting that they would they would rebound, and and they have. Um, yeah, the, the majority of it is just into that diversified Vanguard fund. Yeah, and and have you held those satellite? investments till today or have you got rid of them? Um, how, how did you go during that time when you were sort of um, essentially speculating that the market will rebound for travel and oil stocks? Um, I remember price of petrol was like 70 cents or something <laughs> at, at the height of COVID. I just looked out the um, window just before and, and it was ninety at the moment. So what did you do? So when you invested at the bottom of the market, presumably got a bit lucky, have you held on or how's that fared? 
Yeah, I just just sort of um, wait the twelve months and then I sold them, and um, I think you you pay less capital gains tax when that happens. So yeah, I've I've, I've gotten rid of them. Yeah. Okay. Oh, cool. And um, are you looking at any particular sectors at the moment in terms of you know in the next sort of five years that you think oh maybe you're going to put your money into that satellite portfolio or have you not sort of done that because of what's happened in the um, economic sector with inflation and interest rates etc. Correct, yeah. So I don't have my eye on anything at the moment, but who knows if there is another market dislocation that happens, I'll, I might see that as an opportunity depending on how I feel and uh, financially how we're doing at the time. And with your um, investments in the past or even current or in the future, do you sort of regularly do it or did you regularly invest into those Vanguard things or was it like quarterly or monthly or what was your philosophy on that? Look, I always thought to myself that, um, you know, that money was money that I was, uh, I am or was never going to touch until, you know, when I needed it sometime in retirement. So to be honest, I would never check the price or check how it's doing. I would just dump a large sum of, you know, cash into it and then just sort of forget about it. So um, I know we talk a lot on this podcast about sort of automation, uh, but it was really just a matter of me I guess there was a bit of uncertainty during those last few years about where we would settle down and buy a house. So it was sort of balancing, you know, having some liquid cash aside to um, to maybe go towards a home deposit, but not too much so that you're losing against inflation and paying tax on the interest that it was generating, as well as sort of ongoing investing. So it'd really be, you know, once a once a largest chunk of cash would accumulate that I could couldn't see something more useful for that I would just put it into that fund and yeah it just it's there and it's doing its thing and I don't need to worry about it very much and do, does your wife do the same thing or do you guys all sort of combine finances and do it all together or do you have your own portfolio and your wife has her own portfolio and have you got a kids portfolio for example because um, investing for kids is something that a lot of people ask me about and and I'm sure a lot of people listening in do that as well what's your take on that no no wife and I finances are combined and yeah there's nothing separate for the children I'm sure once they reach that age we'll we'll help them along and uh, teach them as well hopefully yeah look this is this is a bit of dev philosophy we are sidetracking a little bit I actually don't invest specifically for my children um, I feel that as a parent my responsibility is to provide them good quality food safe shelter security and good quality education and teach them the principles of life, which is basically, you know, try and get an education, work hard, play by the rules, don't screw anyone over on purpose, um, and, you know, don't do anything illegal, and just try and be a good role model to their children or their siblings. Um, And I think with that, hopefully, we hope that kids end up learning about money and learning about um, their field of expertise, and then they start investing for themselves. I feel that um, just putting money into an account for them, unless they do it themselves, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, but I do have a relatively robust will, and that sort of protects, you know, my family, protects my children, and um, uh, that's the way that I've structured it. Do you have a will, for example? Is that something that you've you've considered and being so young uh, and having a high income and, and assets? Mm-hmm. No, um, actually, I don't have a will. And coming on here is probably a good reminder that we need one. Um, I suppose, you know, as we've said in the last few years, we've gotten married, had kids. Now we've got a house together. So uh, now is probably as good as time as any to go ahead and get those things done. Um, really essential. Yeah. I mean, my, my sort of philosophy is, you know, for me to be able to be a good parent, I need to provide those things and then it's up to them. Um, 
I'm not a great believer in setting up trust funds just for them because um, nine times out of 10, if they don't learn about it, if they don't do it themselves, they're probably not going to end up with much of it, you know, anyway, because, you know, have developed bad habits. What's interesting though is, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, is that I think a lot of what our kids do and emulate is from us as parents. So, you know, my kids get in a car and they wear their seatbelts because dad gets in the car and wears his seatbelts and mum does the same thing. So I'm hoping that me being financially astute, interested in learning about money, they see me recording episodes, they hear when I speak. Um, Hopefully that instills some values in them to be able to go and find the information themselves, gets them interested rather than me jamming it down their throats. A lot of what kids learn is from passive learning. Um, do you have an FI number? Like, I mean, what's your ultimate aim here? Are, are you going to be a doctor uh, until the age of 65, 70, you know, uh, terrorising the interns? Or, or uh, are, you, are, you, are you thinking about retiring early or maybe partial retirement? What's your thought on FIRE or financial independence in general? Uh, look, I don't have a FI number, uh, but I do believe in a lot of the concepts around that FIRE movement. Um, as you've alluded to before, you know, we're, we're lucky to be in jobs that for the most part are enjoyable. And, uh, you know, I can see myself working in for the next few decades. Um, so retiring early really isn't on my radar at all. Um, I would love to be in the position, though, one day where, you know, work becomes truly optional and I can do sort of as little or as much of it as I want and have sort of much more flexibility to travel and spend time with friends and family. Uh, So coming on here is probably a good reminder for us as a family that it might be worth sitting down and doing some sums to figure out how far off we might that we might be and what the best way to get there would be. But um, yeah, I don't really see myself, uh, maybe uh, maybe I'm boring and I don't have many hobbies, but um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't mind uh, working in this, this career or this field for, for, for the foreseeable future. And look, presumably a lot of doctors, including myself, have invested so much time and effort to becoming a doctor, which is, you know, in most cases, anywhere between 10 and 18 to 20 years, uh, including medical school. Um, it's pretty hard pressed to sort of say, oh, you work for five or 10 years and just give it all up. Um, it, it would be it would be unusual because nine times out of 10, when I speak to healthcare workers in general, have a longer training period, including doctors, a lot of them, you know, they never say to me, nah, I just want to retire at the age of 40 and 45 and go to the Maldives and just retire there forever. Almost always it's, I want the flexibility of working part-time, not working night shifts, not doing on calls. Um, That's the flexibility a lot of healthcare workers desire. And also, you know, just basically saying, nah, I'm not doing that shift for you because I don't have to. Uh, you, you are not going to make me work on Christmas Day because I've worked Christmas Day for the last five, six years and you're not going to make me do that. And by the way, I don't need the penalties because I don't need the money. Um, that would be a nice sort of position to be in. I, I totally understand. Now, you're a self-confessed cheapskate, if I'm not mistaken. I think we had a bit of a chat prior to the episode um, uh, is have I got that right? Is is that right or wrong? Or <laughs> uh, look, I, don't, I was raised with you know ethnic values around money growing up, so frugality was a big thing for us uh, in, in our household growing up. Yeah, frugality is a good word to use because um, I remember growing up, and everyone knows I'm sort of of Indian background. Um, we, we used to go to Indian restaurants. I mean, my, my parents don't eat 
uh, much food outside of their sort of comfort zone. And we're all strict vegetarians. So I'm actually a very strict vegetarian and I always have been. And um, when we go out to these Indian restaurants, uh, you'd, you'd order something and then my, my parents would say, well, you know, we could have made this at home at a much cheaper cost and it probably would have tasted better. <laughs> so um, I, I, I share your frugality uh, sort of mindset. Um, I, I, I sort of, it's interesting. Like I don't, I mean, my, my shoes that I'm wearing now, you know, 20 bucks from Kmart. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't have uh, affinity to buying very expensive shoes. Um, I don't wear an expensive watch. In fact, I have one watch, which I never wear. Um, and I don't buy expensive phones or expensive laptops. I'm fortunate enough to be um, given those at work and also as, as part of continuing medical education. So I, I get the feeling with you, you sort of spend your money wisely with the hope that maybe in the next sort of five or 10 years that opens doors up in terms of, you know, reducing your um, work-life balance. Do you get a lot of criticism about that from your, you know, your wife or your friends or your extended family in terms of your, your frugality or is that just they're just also part of the same mindset? Mm. I think there, there is a societal expectation that perhaps comes with, you know, being a doctor about living a certain way and sometimes, funnily enough, from sort of doctor colleagues as well. Um, but um, I think you just need to, you know, run your own race and, and make, uh, you know, financial decisions that you're comfortable sleeping peacefully with at night. Um, and yeah, I'm fortunate that uh, you know my wife, uh, similar sort of frugal upbringing. So uh, no, 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 no compulsions there. Uh, disagreements on, on on how we live. So that's that's a nice way to be. And what about what about having kids? Has that changed your viewpoint in terms of your expenditure? Like, do you sometimes when you go shopping, you sort of go, oh, you know, impulse buying. Got two young kids. You know, I'll, I want to buy this toy. I can afford it. Why not? Do, are you sort of um, impulsed like that, or how do, how do you work that out? Hmm. I think sometimes, um, I don't know, they're, 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 you know, when you work as a doctor and you work long hours, I think sometimes you feel that guilt that you're not around enough. So when it does come to sort of spending money on your kids, you, you know, when it comes to their toys or their education, then you really don't hold back. Um, so, you know, maybe that's somewhere where, you know, I'm a little bit more relaxed in my spending. I, I really think that, you know, we should provide the best best of everything that we can. So um, that's certainly one thing that as my, my income has grown, I've relaxed a bit more and noticed that even though I'm time poor, uh, but with more disposable income, I'm happier to spend money on things that give me more time to relax or exercise or spend time with or, or have quality experiences with my loved ones. So in a way, we we buy time, buy memories and buy experience, uh, which uh, which I guess having more of a disposable income allows you to. Yeah, same. I mean, we tend to only we don't have any flashy things uh, that we spend on a regular basis, but education, yes, we do spend a fair amount on that. Extracurricular activities um, as your kids grow up. Um, it's one of the things that's unspoken, but it actually costs a lot of money to send them to instrumental lessons or music lessons or um, sports and, and, and you know, other things outside of school. It's not cheap, but hopefully with that comes a well-rounded experience uh, for our kids, and that's what we're trying to. That's what we're trying to do. You know, I, I don't particularly fancy them becoming athletes, but I think having a well-rounded world experience, as I think, is really important. Coming towards the end of the um, end of the interview, you know, you've got the ear of thousands of listeners, mainly healthcare workers. We've got a lot of healthcare workers and non-healthcare workers now joining in, and hence the change in um, the name, my millennial money professional, because I've got a 
a huge group of tradespersons listening in now, um, companies that hire apprentices have contacted me and they listen in and they make it mandatory for their apprentices to listen in on some of these episodes. So you've got thousands of people listening in. What would be your take-home message for someone listening in about money in general and your philosophy? And the second part of that question is anything that you think that you could have done differently to optimise your finances? Yeah, so I think, yeah, in closing, maybe two points there. Um, so, you know, in, in, in my profession, the quickest way to increase your income is to get your fellowship. So to get that final level of qualification, you know, then maximising your earning potential from then on. So I think as doctors, purely from a financial sense, it's wisest to sort of making attaining that fellowship your priority and then sort of financially sort of everything can follow on from that. Um, I think more generally money-wise, you know, it's really important to remember that money is really just a means. It's it's not the end. Uh, and it's important that we learn how to earn it, how to save it and how to grow it. But it's equally important to know sort of how to spend it and not be afraid to deploy your capital to your advantage, you know, when you need it, uh, both day-to-day and for larger big ticket ex- uh, sort of expenses like homes or cars or holidays or education. So um, really, really, really important to be frugal and to accumulate, but but also to, to know how to sort of spend it effectively and confidently as well. Yeah, two, two very good points. I agree. I mean, you don't want to be the richest person in the graveyard. I mean, that's a famous thing that everyone says, but um, you've got to put that into practice. Um, really appreciate your time, Dr. Nick. Thanks for coming on uh, the show. We're recording uh, this in the new year. So happy new year to yourself, your family uh, and your extended family. And uh, I hope 2023 brings you um, more financial success, more career success and um, more personal and family success. So really appreciate you spending the time. Thank you so much, Dev. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it. That's Dr. Nick from Melbourne. Now, if you want to leave a five-star review, um, please leave a five-star review and rating an Apple podcast or any of the other platforms or leave it on all of the platforms. That's even better because if more people read those reviews, if more people listen to this and it helps them, uh, then your review potentially can change people's lives. My name is Dev Raga. This is My Millennium Money Professional. Until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 